Well, last week we looked at uh, verses 1 through 7 in Ecclesiastes 5, and we talked about uh, five characteristics of integrity. And um, those were integrity involves a cautious response in coming before the Lord. We saw that in verse 1. Secondly, we saw integrity is a controlled reluctance in speaking before God. And we saw that in verses 2 and 3. And then the third point we drew out, amongst others, was integrity is a clear resolve to fulfill your commitments. In other words, when you say you're going to do something for God, you better do it. You know, you don't want to promise God. And we, you know, we've all probably done that at some point, you know, in our lives. Um, Get me out of this situation, Lord, and I promise. (laughs) And then he does, and we don't. So we have to be careful with that. And then the fourth thing is integrity is a continual resistance to sin. We saw that in verse 6. Then the last thing we touched on was a integrity is a constant, a constant reference, a, a reverence for God, a constant reverence for God. And you see that in verse 7 where we left off last week where it says, but God is the one you must fear. And so tonight we want to look at verses 8 through 20. And this speaks with the, the subject matter of uh, riches or wealth. And honor, and so uh, follow along in your Bibles as I begin in verse 8. Solomon writes, If you see in a uh, province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by someone who's even higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is a sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, in anger. Verse 18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil, with which one toils under the sun the few few days of his life that God has given to him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and enjoy in his toil. This is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. A lot of times when we talk about issues... Or today we're going to be looking at Solomon's four major problems with wealth. Uh, 
most of us will say the problem with wealth is I don't have any. <laughs> and um, we all think we need more of it. And that's how the world thinks. Um, but even those who have more than they'll ever need, these four problems stand out. And we're going to see how these apply um, to our own lives. And so the first thing here in verses 8 to 9, we see that wealth can cause moral defilement or moral, moral failure. In verse 8 it says, If you see in, in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed. And then he talks about the bureaucracy. There's officials over them, over them, over them. And then it says, But this is gain for the land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. What Solomon is saying here is that more than anything else, money, wealth, um, gain has the potential to literally ruin your life. Now, we don't think of it that way because we live in a world where it says, no, it's good to have lots of money and you should always want more money and that's why you work, that's why you have a job, that's why you have retirement, that's why you do all these things is to get your little pot of gold at the end so you can live happily ever after. But what the Bible says is that's kind of a pipe dream. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you can't plan. You can't, you know, we're, we're, we're instructed to do that in Scripture. We should have a plan. We should be able to care for our children, all those things. But the Bible itself is not, Solomon here isn't condemning wealth. He's not condemning money because the, the, the Bible is very clear in other passages that money itself is not evil, right? What's evil about money? The love of money, right? The love of money. And today we live in a world, especially here in the Silicon Valley, where people have money hand over fist. I mean, they'll buy a $5 million house and tear it down so they can build their own little $10 million house. And it's like, I just go, wow, where do they get this money? Well, the love of that kind of money, what the Bible says, is the root of all kinds of evil. In other words, it's the source of it. It's, it's where it's birthed. And he kind of lays out three things here under this point. And the first one is, it can cause moral defilement by punishing the poor. Um, I mean, we live in America, and we have probably one of the highest of standards of living in the world. Even if you're poor in America, you're probably doing better than some uh, most third world countries. All right? And we don't want to hear about the poor. You know, we, we don't really want to deal with the poor. Um, once in a while, we'll have a homeless person show up here on a Sunday. You know, we have a meal in here after Sunday morning, and, you know, anybody's welcome to come, and they'll come in. And I mean, it's a homeless person, so there's a table full of food. So what's he going to do? He's going to load that baby up. And not so much recently, but years ago, actually I had to talk to somebody. I said, you know, that's okay. It's okay. Well, they're taking too much food. It's like, they don't have any food. You know, and we're probably going to throw food out at the end of the day. So, whatever. Let them pile it up. And, you know, we don't, I think, consciously think that we don't want to have anything to do with the poor. But our society is so segmented. I mean, that's just the way it is. You know, there's certain areas of the Bay Area you can go and you can see 
a lot more poor people, a lot more homeless people than you can in other areas. All right? And so we kind of put that aside. And yet the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says that God is very concerned about the needy. He's very concerned. In, in Psalm 12, verse 5, um, the psalmist writes this, Because the poor are plundered. In other words, somebody's taking advantage of the poor. The poor are plundered because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. All right? The Lord is arising on their behalf. And he says, I will place him in the safety for which he longs. So we see, you know, God is, is a compassionate God. He's a caring God. And it doesn't matter whether you have a billion dollars in the bank or no money in the bank. Right? We're all created, what? In his image. And so he cares about his creation. Or Psalm 72, verses 12 to 14. It says, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and he saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. All right? Um... I remember when I was a youth pastor down, well, we did it over in Fremont too, but mostly down in the valley, down in uh, Palm Springs area, um, we had a thing called a um, compassion, um, it was a, like, I think it was 18 hours fast, and you start on a Friday night, and you'd go to Sunday morning, and maybe it was 30 hours, I can't remember what it was, but, um, so they couldn't eat anything, the kids couldn't eat anything during this time. And you get pledges, and you'd raise money for these poor people in third world countries. And I'll still remember, you know, when we do this, um, the, the one year we did it at our house, and usually um, it was either uh, Saturday night or, or early Sunday morning before we went to church, we would make a big pot of, like, stew, like soup, several pots, actually. And we'd make sandwiches, and... You know, the kids hadn't eaten in like 30 hours, right? So there's, there's, they're famished. Yeah, they're drooling over this, you know, it wasn't anything fancy. But, you know, we were all drooling over it because we hadn't eaten anything. Our stomach's groaning. And, and I remember part of the thing was, okay, we're going to take this soup and put it in little containers and the sandwiches. And we'd go out to Indio, California there, and uh, find some homeless people. And we would, you know, feed the homeless. And... Um, you know, it, it was a really good lesson for these kids because they never went without a meal. You know, they never experienced that kind of hunger. And, you know, after, you know, you can kind of hang in there for like 12 hours, but then, I mean, your stomach starts to do things you never thought it could do, <laughs> you know, and you're feeling things. And, you know, some kids would start breaking out in the sweat, cold sweat. Oh, I got to eat something. It's like, oh, you do. You don't, you don't get your pledges, you know. All right, you know. And they could drink water. That's the only thing you could do. And, um, but it was a very good, good lesson. And to think that, you know, that, that's a kind of a laboratory where, where that's a, uh, something we created for them. But can you imagine being on the street and not knowing not only where your next meal is going to come from, but if it's going to rain, where am I going to sleep tonight? Or boy, if it dips down pretty cold, do I have enough hand-me-down blankets or jackets or whatever I need? Do I have socks? Do I have shoes? And you see these people huddled up against a building where the heat comes out or, you know, the exhaust fan. That's why they're there. 
Now, we have a tendency to look at them and go, oh, those vagrants. They, they said, you know, and, you know, I'm not for all the homeless people in San Francisco. I think it's a plight on, on the city and they need to deal with it. But the unfortunate thing is, rather than deal with it, they're enabling them. Okay, so most of these people, they're giving them money for their drugs and their alcohol and their cigarettes and all that stuff, but they don't know where they're going to get their next meal. And so the point is, is that there's homelessness all around us. There's, there's, there's people who are poor and needy all around us, but a lot of times we don't want to look at it. <laughs> we just want to put it off. And, and God is looking at it every day. He cares for them. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor, listen to this, lends to the Lord. Whoever is generous to the poor, Proverbs 19.17, lends to the Lord. Now, you would think, well, why does the Lord need somebody to lend something to? It's not, the Lord's not uh, poor, okay? He's not saying that. He's just saying, the end of that verse, it says, and he will repay him for his deed. So you want a guaranteed blessing from the Lord. Okay, find someone who's legitimately homeless, legitimately hungry, and buy him a sandwich. Buy him a soda. Buy him a cup of coffee. Do, do something. Now, I understand there's a lot of shysters out there. We, I deal with them every week, you know, here at the church. They come to the church, and I remember several years ago, um, I got a call. I was here at the church. I got a call from this gentleman, and uh, he said uh, he was wondering if there was a pastor he could talk to. And I said, well, I'm the pastor. What could I help you with? Well, I'm just, I, I have to make some decisions, and I need someone to talk to. And... Uh, uh, is there any way, you know, you're in you're in Redwood City, right? And and you know, I said yeah. And and he said, well, um, I'm a professor at Stanford University. Um, do you know where the Stanford Mall is? And I'm like, yeah. Is there any way maybe we, I could buy you a cup of coffee at McDonald's? I just need to really talk to you about some things, the Lord. And I'm like, wow, okay, you know, wow, okay. So, you know, I told my wife, and she's like, wait a minute, where are you going? You don't know this person? I said, well, I'm at the mall. I mean, you know, what can happen at the mall, right? So I kind of had, you know, some suspicions, but I thought, no. I get there, and I meet with this guy for about two hours. To his word, I walk in. He's there. He's got a briefcase. He's dressed in kind of a, had a tie on. He's an older, not, not old, but older gentleman, older than I was, and very well-spoken, had it look like he was professor at Stanford. <laughs> so he says, hey, let me get your coffee. I said, I'll get your coffee. No, 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 let me get there. All right, fine. This is odd. So he buys me the cup of coffee. We go sit down in a booth. And he begins to tell me a little bit about his life and you know, all this stuff. And, and then he says, you know, the reason I wanted to talk to you is I'm kind of uh, at a dilemma. You know, I'm married. I have a wife. And uh, I just got news from the doctor I have about six weeks to live. I have like stage four, blah, 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 what, pancreatic cancer or something. I'm like, wow, okay. And he goes, I'm on my way out of town. I have to go to this conference. And, you know, I, I don't want to tell my wife yet. Do you think I should? So we had this whole, you know, well, I think you shouldn't keep things like that from your spouse. That's kind of serious. And I get it. It's a little awkward. But how long are you going to be going on the conference? And, you know, I guess you could do it when you get back. But... Um, went through this whole thing in two hours, you know, the end of the two hours, prayed for him, 
and um, everything. And, and he, he admitted he kind of walked away from the Lord a little bit, but, you know, he was raised in a Christian home and was very, said all this stuff. And then when the conversation was over, I said, well, you know, let me know what you decide. You know, here's my cell phone number. I gave my cell phone number. And so he goes, well, what kind of car do you drive? I go, why? Well, I'm just curious. I just want to see what kind of car you drive. I'm like, okay. You know, so I had the, uh, I think I had the uh, John's Honda at the time, that little beater that he gave me. And so um, we went out in the Stanford Mall, and I'm thinking, okay, what's this guy up to, you know? It's just kind of weird, so I'm being cautious. But I said, oh, my car's right here, you know? And he goes, oh, wow, that's that's what you drive? I go, yeah. He goes, okay, that's good. That tells That tells me a lot about you. I'm like, okay, I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> Why, because I drive a cheap car? You know, it was just a weird thing to say. Anyway, this whole conversation ends. He goes his way, I go my way. I'm thinking, all right, whatever. I get back to the church. About 45 minutes later, my cell phone rings. It's him. And he goes, Pastor, I, I, I just, um, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed of this, but I'm on my way to the airport. And... Um, I decided to go home first and tell my wife, but I want to get some flowers, some nice flowers. I'm like, okay, that's nice, I guess. You know, you're leaving and give her some flowers. Right, but um, I, it's, it's really weird, but I don't have any credit cards with me or anything. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, okay. And I'm like, no way. This, this guy, there's no way he's going to ask me. That's what he did. Is there any way you could, you know, I mean, I, I stopped by a floor. I want to get a really nice flowers, you know, I'm, and it might seem, but I'll pay you back as soon as I get, the, you know, I'm, wait, so you're, you're going to the airport and you have no credit cards. And I mean, I said, what's wrong with this picture? You know, he goes, well, it's, they said it'd be about $150. Is there any way, you know, we could meet back at the mall and you could give me the $150 so I could buy my wife these flowers? And I said, well, first of all, I don't have $150 in my pocket. Um, Secondly, I have to talk to my wife about it. So I'll have to call you back. I was just like blown away. I mean, this was like he just reeled me right in, right? And I was more angry than anything that I thought, wow, this guy is a real, this is a scammer, right? So I went over the... uh, I think Ambika wasn't working here then, so I called her at home, and she's, she, because I told her I was going down there to meet him, and she goes, absolutely not. I mean, what are you, stupid? You know, I said, no, I'm not going to give him the money, but I just, I can't believe, I want to believe him, you know? I mean, in a weird way, it's like I want to go take these wife, these flowers my, myself to his wife and see if he's really telling me the truth, but I know better. And uh, so I ended up calling the guy back, and I said, hey, you know, um, yeah, I don't have that, that kind of cash right now. I, I can't help you. Are you saying you won't give me the $150? That was his tone. I go, uh, yeah, that's what I said. What kind of pastor are you? I'm like, excuse me? I mean, then he starts assaulting, kind of saying all the stuff. And I said, hey, have a nice day. And I hung up. And um, I called my, my friend Dennis Logie, who was the pastor of Sequoia Christian Church. And I said, uh, hey, um, I just had the weirdest experience. I told him the story. He goes, he was here yesterday. I'm like, are you serious? He goes, yeah, but this, he told me his wife had the cancer, so he was buying her flowers. Not that he had the cancer. He kind of changed up the story a little bit. And then I called, we used to have an organization here called Love, Inc. 
I called them. They said, oh, yeah, he's hit, like, you know, a bunch of churches. And they've actually given him the money. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. I mean, he built a couple hundred dollars out of. But I'm, so with that being said, though, I mean, we have to be wise, right? But after that experience, I found myself, you know, when people come to the church, it's like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I got burned once. I'm not going to get burned again. And that's not right either. Right. I mean, we, we're called to be compassionate. We're called to be caring. And so we have to guard against that kind of attitude, I guess, is what I'm saying. And, you know, the Bible clearly says that we're to use our funds, our resources, our money for the glory of God. And part of that is to help people. And, you know, I have a couple rules that, you know, when I entertain um, people in need, you know, if they come to the the church and they're asking for money, I'll say, look, are you, are you, how did you get here? Did you walk? Did you drive a car? No, I drove a car. Okay, you know what? I'll, I'll put some gas in your car. I'm not giving you cash. And I just tell them right out front. I said, I'll buy you a sandwich. I'll go to uh, Safeway and get you a gift card or something, but I'm not, I'm not going to give you the cash. And, um, and the reason is that because more than not, they don't use it for the right things. Okay, they got the little hungry kids standing there, but they're going to go buy drugs with it or alcohol. And, and so that, it, just, it just it makes you suspect. But with that being said, um, you know, we just have to remind ourselves, you know what, if they are treating you out of something, that's on them. God will still reward you. You know, I mean, I, we're supposed to be wise about this, but we, we can't grow so hard that we're turning a blind eye to everything we see around it. Because you can never outgive the Lord. I mean, you just can't. Um, Proverbs 22, verse 22 says, Do not rob the poor, because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. And you say, well, who would rob a poor person? It happens all the time. Yeah. They, well, not only that. I mean, just people on the street. You hear about it all the time. They're beating up the homeless guy and take his radio, the only thing he owned, or... The other place where you see it a lot is in convalescent homes, nursing homes. I mean, I've gone and visited people, and, you know, it's like Fort Knox. It's like, why do you have your little radio chained to your bed? <laughs> oh, they'll steal it. They'll come in here at night and steal it when I'm, when I'm sleeping. I'm like, really? Oh, yeah. And the nurses say the same thing. You know, and these are, you know, pretty much helpless people. And, you know, I think God's got a special place for people to do that. But I think that we have to be careful not to have the attitude of James. You know, James in chapter 2, verse 15, 16, you know, he, he warns us about seeing somebody in need and saying, oh, be warmed, be filled, God bless you, you know, and walk away and not even lift a finger to help them. Okay. And uh, sometimes we, we get so busy that, you know, to stop and to inquire what their need is even. You know, we, we saw a couple um, over at uh, Walgreens one time, and it was late at night. I think we had to get a prescription, and it was sick or something. And I'm sitting in the car, and I'm watching these people, and they had their little baby there, and I think it was an Indian couple, actually. And so um, I thought, you know, Lord, what do, you, do you want us to do something for this, this couple and this family? And they had a sign, and I couldn't read it because I didn't have my contacts in. So I had Ambika, when she came out, I made her go read the sign and see what it said. And it said something about needs money for the feed the child or something like that. And um, 
Um, so I went over and, you know, we offered to buy him a sandwich or something, go to McDonald's and bring it back or whatever. And, oh, no, no, we, we need the money. We don't, we don't need it. <laughs> it's like, well, your sign says this, you know. So you, you have to be careful is the point, you know. We all, we all know that. But we can't go to the other extreme and not have a compassionate heart. Um, a lot of times people who have a lot of wealth and a lot of things, they have a very uh, strong lack of concern for anybody who doesn't share their wealth. You know what I mean? If you're not on the same level as they are, you're, you're nobody because that's where they get their identity from. And that's the opposite of what the Bible tells us uh, we should be doing um, with, with the funds that God's entrusted to us. Um, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, it says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Notice he says, you work, <clears throat> not so you can go spend it on yourself, but so that you can share with anyone in need. That's kind of the biblical principle there. That's what we're called um, to do, that even the labor, the work that we do, we think, well, we're just there to build our little castle and, and make our pot bigger. No, God says, you know what? We're called to work with our own hands, not just to supply our own sustenance, but also to help others in need. And, um, you know, the, the, the whole enterprise of our culture today does just the opposite. It leads us away from doing that. It says, no, you, you know, you've got to watch out for number one. You don't worry about those people. You know, they're on the street because it's their choice and blah, 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 blah. And it may be. All right. And, uh, you know, I'm not giving credence to the, a lot of the homelessness we see in San Francisco because I think a lot of it is self-inflicted. And that's where you have to be wise and cautious but at the same time we don't want to become so hardened in our heart that we are punishing the poor um and a lot of times that's what ends up happening with people um the second thing there is perverting justice and righteousness you see that it says if you see in a province or uh, an area where there's leadership over it the oppression of poor and the violation of justice and righteousness all right this is something that exists everywhere everywhere here in the united states everywhere um and you can see it from in some countries when you uh, i know that when we went with david hawking to uh israel and first we went to turkey and all of our visa fees everything was paid up front that was part of the deal and he had paid it all and we got to the airport in istanbul turkey to go into the country and they said you have to pay your visa and he said, we already paid it. Here's the receipt. It's already done. Nope, can't, I won't let you in. And we like 50 people. $50 a piece. Or you don't come in our country. And you want to see David Hawking get mad. He's a huge guy. He was up there yelling and all kind of, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, they're going to throw him in jail or something, you know. And he wasn't, he was just being very forthright with them. This is wrong. But he came back and he said, I'm sorry, but you got to pony up 50 bucks, please, or we don't go in the country. It's injustice. It's a ripoff. You know, so we paid basically 100 bucks <laughs> because we already paid the 50 before. And see, that's what, <clears throat> in, in Psalm 10, verse 11, this is what David was, was crying out. He says, He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. In other words, speaking of the dishonest person, 
In other words, you can get away with this. God's not going to follow up with you. Do whatever you want. Cheat on your taxes, steal from your employer, whatever. It's not a big deal. It says he hides his face. He will never see it. That's what they think, people that do these kind of things. But in verse 12, it says, Arise, O Lord, O God, in Psalm 10, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? 14 says, but you do see, for you notice mischief and vexation that you may take it into your own hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. See, we think we're going to get away with stuff like that. And God says, no, 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 you're not. Sooner or later, there's going to be a judgment day. Sooner or later, these things will be found out. Um, The Bible says basically that we are all open and naked before our God. He sees everything we do. Um, And that's how we have to deal with him with our faith, with our trust, with our confidence um, through Christ. And, uh, you know, hopefully that when we understand that we're held accountable to God, that that comes down even to our pocketbooks and our checkbooks. Um, Because if, if, if if it hasn't, then we really don't have anything at all. It really hasn't affected our lives. Um, I mean, the Lord really tells us throughout the Gospels, uh, through his writings, he says, you know, basically the way you use your money reveals really what's going on on the inside. That's, that's, that's so true. And, um, you know, it's really a temperature gauge of our own discipleship. It's a temperature gauge of our own um, spirituality. So punishing the poor, perverting justice and righteousness. Third thing there is profiting um, from their position. In verse 9 it says, But this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cult, cultivated fields. Um, it, it, the principle here is that people profit off the needs of others. When people have a need, somebody's making a profit. It doesn't matter if it's a homeless shelter, it doesn't matter where it's at. And on that profit thing, the higher you get up, the more you profit off the basic needs of the people. I mean, just think about going into the grocery store and buying your food every week. Somebody's making a profit off you. And this is stuff you have to have. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, milk and bread and, you know, and that's just the way of life. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just, you know, that's the way it works. But see, Solomon had the idea that, you know what? I, I've seen this thing from top to bottom. Remember who he was. I mean, he had more wealth than anyone. Ever, yeah. And he, he's experienced the whole thing top to bottom. And, and what he was saying, the wisest man says, you know what? It's corrupt. The whole system's corrupt. And so he's trying to tell us, you know what? Money can cause you moral defilement. Don't focus with ever, all your energy on only that. And he's trying to warn us in the Bible, in the New Testament even, to be careful about the love of money because it could lead you down all kinds of wrong paths. In, in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24 and 26, Proverbs 11, 24 and 26, it says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer, and another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. 
Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. The one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. You know, so there's there's a principle here of reaping and sowing, and I'm not talking about the word of faith kind of reaping and sowing. I'm talking about the biblical principle of reaping and sowing. Um, there was a senator who said this at a prayer breakfast in Chicago. He said, the more prestige, the more power a man gains, the harder it is for him to admit, uh, to admit he is wrong, whatever power becomes the aim of a man's life, he unconsciously places himself above the laws of God and above the laws of his fellow man. Then he said this, every man who has a prominent position is under the continual temptation to use all means available, both lawful and unlawful, to maintain and augment his power and prestige. He's in a place, he writes, and he says, of grave moral danger you want a good example of this look at our politicians right i mean these people go to washington and they leave multi-million if not billionaires out of there and you know what for what and so you you have to you know when you when they're walking down on marble floors and where they where they work every day you know, that just tells them and reinforces, wow, you are powerful, you are prestigious, and you deserve all this and more. And that's why they don't leave. Because they, they like it there. I mean, who wouldn't? So, wealth can cause moral defilement. Secondly, wealth can cause great disappointment. Look at verses 10 to 12. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Remember, vanity is just like the steam that comes off the teacup and it's gone. It's, you can't capture it. He says in verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. In other words, the more money you have, the more people are going to be dependent on you <laughs> for their sustenance. Bigger family you're going to have. More servants you're going to have. Well, all those people need to be fed. All those need to people need to be cared for you know you can read examples you read in the business journals and things like that you can actually read examples of people who took their small little company where they were doing really well and they wanted more they wanted more it wasn't it wasn't enough just to have a family operated company that was successful so then they they blow out the thing and they get investors and, and in the end you know what they're working twice as hard but they're not they're not getting anything because they got to pay all these people and everybody's got a stake in their business now. And it's like, wow, what, what happened? You know, wealth can cause great disappointment. First of all, through a lack of satisfaction. A lack of satisfaction. That's what he, he says there. He says, you know what, you, you can never have enough. That's the mentality. Um, if you think that making big money and getting the promotion and the big house on the hill is going to bring you satisfaction, you're wrong. You will not be satisfied with that. Um, and, you know, just, just ask people of extreme wealth, people that have the castle on the hill and the, the, the multiple millions, if not billions, of, of dollars. You know, there's, there's something about that 
attraction of money that says, wow, you know, they, they, they just can't stop. They just can't stop. They can't find satisfaction. Um, I heard one pastor say, getting things doesn't bring you happiness. Giving does. And that's true, if you think about it. I mean, it really does. Um, 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, listen to this, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So you just got to be cautious. You have to be careful. Um, In one commentary, Walter Kaiser said this, Human desire outruns acquisition. No matter how large the acquisitions may be. What's, it, what's that mean? That means basically the more you have, guess what? The more you want. That's just built into our, who we are, our nature. Watch two little kids in the nursery playing with a, a, you know, a pile of blocks. One starts taking them, piling them up. Mine, mine. And pretty soon the other one has nothing. They try to take one back. No. You know, they, they want them all. And that's kind of built into us. Part of the sinful, sinful nature. But the world wants us to love money. The world wants us to love the world system. The world wants us, the enemy wants us to see that as an answer to all our problems. And it's foolish. And that's what Solomon's saying. This is foolishness. You know, I, I mean, I've, as a youth pastor, I remember talking to parents about their kids going to school. You know, no, little Johnny's going to, you know, Temple University to become a doctor because dad's a doctor. That's what he's going to do. But little Johnny doesn't want to be a doctor. He wants to be an auto mechanic, you know. And no, it's not good enough. And no, he's going to be a doctor. And boy, it's just, you know, you, you can't, why? Why do you want him to be a doctor? Well, so he can take care of his family. He's not going to be able to make any money as an auto mechanic. And see, we've, we've turned everything on its head. Um, some of the most unhappy people in the world are the wealthiest. That is so true. According to the Bible, wealth can very easily take your heart away from the Lord. That's what we just read. And so we have to be cautious. Um, Solomon knew long ago that money wasn't the answer to everything. It just isn't. Um, ask, where's your heart with the Lord? Are you managing faithfully what he's entrusted to you? Um, Don't buy into the attraction. More is better. Verse 11, um, you can also see lack of satisfaction in the abundance of money. In verse 11, he makes it clear there that the ones who love the increase of money is chasing what? Emptiness. It's chasing vanity. vanity. There's nothing there. Uh, It's just... You know, and, and we live in an area of the country where there's an overabundance, it seems, of money. Um, and then third point there is the advantage of money. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. Um, and then it asks the question, what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? In other words, you know what? It, it's here today, gone tomorrow. That's the mentality. Um, it shows the increased wealth brings increased burdens, increased taxation, increased payroll. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, even Ken, when your business, when it was you and your brother, 
I mean, yeah, you might have been scratching by, but I mean, you know, hard work or whatever. But now you got, you know, how many employees? You got to manage all this stuff, you know? I mean, it's, it's with, with that kind of growth comes more heartache, more headaches. And, and, you know, what Solomon's saying is that, you know what, wealth can really rob you of your peace of mind. Um, and you, you have to be, you know, uh, cautious with that. So it's nothing wrong with having it, but you just got to keep it in its perspective. So through a lack of satisfaction, and then in verse 12, he points this out, even through a lack of sleep. I mean, how practical is that? He says, sleep, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. In other words, if you put in a, a good hard day's work, you're going to sleep. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You know, yeah, they got acid reflux. Who knows what they got going on? But they're, the idea is, is that they're worrying so much about the riches, they don't have time to sleep. Because um, their security is where? It's in their riches. Their identity is in their riches. You take the riches away, they're lost. They don't know what to do. And so a lack of satisfaction equals a lack of sleep. And if you read medical journals, in, insomnia is a real problem for people today. There's a lot of people that don't get the proper amount of sleep. Um, now, on the other hand, the Bible doesn't teach us that it's, it's, it's better to be poor. Okay, we're not saying that either. We're not saying, oh, oh, you're poor, you don't have a nickel to, in your pocket. That's great. You're a very godly. No, it's not saying that either. We can't go to the other extreme. Um, because remember, the problem is not money. The problem is what? Our hearts. The problem is our attraction to money and our, our idolization of money. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 and 8, it says, Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. This is what Solomon asks. He says, Re- remove far from me falsehood and lying. Keep me honest. And then he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Okay, he doesn't ask for either one. He says, feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So, you know, he he lays out this illustration and he says, you know what, for the full and the rich, in the end, what do they do? They say, yeah, who needs God? I got everything I need right here. How many times have you witnessed to somebody, what do I need your God for? You know, I'm a good husband. I provide for my family. I'm, why do I need that? But on the other hand, to be poor, you're going to be tempted to steal. You're going to be, be tempted to, to do things that would profane the name of the Lord. So both extremes have their disadvantages. And so he just wants us to be aware of that. So it can cause, wealth can cause moral defilement. Great disappointment, but then also it can cause emotional damage, he says in verses 13 to 17. Emotional damage. Solomon said in verse 13 there, Ecclesiastes 5, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. In other words, to his disadvantage. And it says in verse 14, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. So this is somebody who was obviously very wealthy, but in the end, he didn't even have a nickel to give to his son. He had nothing in his hand. What's Solomon saying? 
verse 15 tells us. As he came from his mother's womb, so he shall go again. Naked he came, naked he'll go. You're not going to carry anything with you to the grave. Um, yeah, really. I mean, it, it's, it's, so, it's so important to understand that concept, though. That what you have right now is what you have right now. Because you may not have it in two minutes. You may not have it in two hours or two days or two months or two years. And so we have to keep that kind of mentality because if we don't, you're going to end up being damaged even emotionally when you rely on your riches. That's why he says there in verse uh, 14, they, they rely on their riches. Um, you know, he puts all their trust in it. First um, Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the what? Uncertainty of riches. I mean, one little market, everything could be gone. And if you have all your trust in that, in your bank account or whatever, wow. How are you going to deal with that emotionally when you wake up and you're, you have nothing? But we should keep our hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It says, it finishes off that verse. I mean, you can read stories of people who've lost everything. I mean, not just millions, millionaires, I mean billionaires. I read a story the other day of some oil tycoon, and when the whole uh, glut with Saudi Arabia hit, he lost everything. I mean, he had billions of dollars and it's gone. <laughs> just crazy. And by the way, Apparently, he's a pastor now. Just, yeah, I mean, it was just really weird. Um, so what happens to our emotional well-being when all everything is gone? Well, when you rely on your riches, you're going to set yourself up for a fall. And it doesn't mean it's a million dollars. You know, it could be, hey, you're working a part-time job and you're relying on that. You know, you're relying on your work to give you money to do what you need to do. Rather than saying, hey, God, thank you for this job that's providing. <laughs> thank you, Lord, for providing through this job. Um, I think it's, it's a very important perspective. So don't rely on the riches. But also, it can cause us damage when we refuse to accept the temporary nature of any wealth we may get. And that's what it says there in verse 15 and 16. You know what? When you leave, you're not, you're not going to pull a trailer you know, to the grave with you. You're not going to take all the stuff. It's going to be left here. And um, there's no way we can take it when we die. And that's why the Bible tells us over and over and over again that we should invest in eternity, right? Uh, Job 121 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, what? The Lord took away. <laughs> Blessed be the name of the Lord. I mean, that that's should be our attitude. Because it's just temporary. In the greater scheme of things, the life on this earth is like a vapor. It's here, gone. First um, Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 and 8, Paul writes this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. Verse 8 says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, that's not saying you can't have more than food and clothing. <laughs> but it is saying that, you know what? Be content with what we have. Uh, 
emotional damage happens when you forget that basic principle. And then thirdly, there, it can cause damage when we realize the suffering wealth can bring. Look at what he says in verse 17. This is kind of telling. He says, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, in anger. The wealthy person he's referring to. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And that's, you know, those are the results of trusting in wealth. It's not saying that wealth is bad, but when you're solely trusting in wealth rather than trusting in the Lord, you're going to end up sorrowful, eating in darkness, um, sick, and angry. And you know what? There's a lot of wealthy people that are all those plus some. <laughs> you know, and, and that's why. Um, and I... What's unfortunate is when you see people within the church begin to buy into that kind of mentality of the world. They're letting the world influence their thinking so that all of a sudden, rather than measuring each other in terms of spirituality, they're measuring each other in terms of their wealth or their success. Churches do this all the time. You know, um, Often I'll talk to a pastor. Oh, I got this 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 great elder, and you know, um, oh really? Well, how long has he been coming to your church? Oh, you know, well like six months. But uh, he, you know, he's 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 involved with the you know Facebook crowd, and he's got all his resources, and so we made him an elder. I'm just going, wow, really? You know, for all the wrong reasons. Why? Because he's successful, or he's a realtor, or he's this, or he's that, or he's a CEO of a company. Oh, we'll give him a title in the church. Um, it's easy to slip over that edge of Christian commitment into the secular thinking. I see it happen all the time. I mean, you know, people that are walking with the Lord, they're committed to the Lord, and all of a sudden they get a little success in their life, and pretty soon they, they start, they're, they're moving. They just move. And pretty soon they're embracing things that's very secular in their thinking. And they don't even realize it. Um, and you try to tell them, and... They, 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 won't, they won't even hear you. It's too late. Um, and that's what happens when you look at your money or your wealth rather um, than the Lord. And then the last thing here can lead to spiritual defeat. It can cause spiritual defeat. Um, when, <coughs> when would this happen? <coughs> well, when you don't rejoice in what God has given to you. That's what he says there in verse 18. Behold, what I have seen... To be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. In other words, toiling work is God's plan for our life. God did not create us to do nothing. Even Adam and Eve had things to do in the garden. We will have things to do in heaven. We won't just be playing some harp on some cloud somewhere, which makes me feel good because I think I'd be real bored in like two seconds. You know, so I mean, to have tasks and, and to be able to worship the Lord through through even work in heaven. Now, obviously, there's not going to be the, the sweat and there's not going to be the weeds and all that stuff. So it's really going to be a blessing to do it up there. But we should look forward to that. And he says, you know what? All the toil that you do under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. In other words, we're only here for a short time. And what's unfortunate, I see it time and time again, people do not enjoy what they have. 
It's like they, they can't enjoy where they're at in life. They can't enjoy the blessings of today. They're always looking for the climbing the ladder of tomorrow. And, and God says, you know what? You need to just slow down, enjoy the next 24 hours. I mean, it's okay to plan, it's okay, but you know what? A lot of people can't, can't enjoy what they have. You know why? Because they're too worried about what they're not going to have tomorrow or how much more they're going to have. And so it's, it's, it's very important that, you know what? If you're walking with the Lord, you can enjoy each day with what God has given you and be content in that. Um, you know, it doesn't just have to do with money either. I remember when I was single before I was married. I mean, I didn't get married until I was 33. And as a youth pastor, I mean, any church I was in, the pastor was always trying to fix me up with somebody. You know, oh, we got the single youth pastor. Oh, here, you know. And I was like, yeah, I'm not interested. I just want to serve the Lord, do what he wants me to do, and not get distracted with all this stuff. And I thought I'd was going to be like the Apostle Paul and, you know, I'll be single for life, you know, all this stuff. Well, that wasn't God's plan, thankfully. But what, what really, I think, got me through all that was that I really honestly had a contentment with where God, I knew that if God wanted me married, he would bring that about. You know, I don't think you need to go online and, 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 and search on these dating sites. And I think, you know what, if, if you have an intention to be married and that's your desire, God knows that. And at the right time, he'll bring the right person. So you just kind of need to relax a little bit. And, you know, today we, we just get so crazy about that kind of stuff. And we need to check our attitude and, and stop looking always for something new. Uh, maybe God has you single now in your life for a specific purpose. Maybe he's building things into your life to prepare you for that. Um, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and 34, all the way down it says this. It's, you know, the subheading in most of your Bibles, it says, do not be anxious. And Jesus says there, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? And then he gives this illustration. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which one of you, by being anxious, I love this question, can add a single hour to his span of life? Do you ever think about that? Whenever you're worrying about something, you're just like burning fuel. It's just a waste of time. Because that worrying is not going to change anything. Nothing. I mean, I can see if it made you feel better, but worrying doesn't make you feel better. <laughs> it gets you uptight, your stomach, all the things happen. It's not good. And he says, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, listen to this, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And here's the key. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added 
unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Um, that's such a good set of verses for us to even commit to memory. And then over in Philippians 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, <clears throat> by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. <clears throat> and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, you know, this, this whole idea that, that this can um, uh, cause um, defeat in your life and all that, it's, it's a very real thing. But when you thank God each day for what he's given you and you keep focused on him as your provider and not your job or not your bank account or not anything else, then you can keep all these things in perspective. The last thing here, it can cause spiritual defeat when you do not recognize its true source. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. All we have, we got from God. We got to stop believing, no, what I got is because I was gifted and I did this and I, you know, I worked hard for that. No, you, you got it because God gave it to you. Um, that's what 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says. Paul says, for who sees anything different in you? And he asks this question, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, we've got to stop packing, patting ourselves on the head and the back saying, oh, look at me, look at this, look at that, and stop and start praising the Lord for what we have. Um, I think that's a very, very important point. A Christian should really um, recognize God as the source of everything that they have. If you don't do that as a Christian, you're definitely going to feel defeated. You're definitely going to be defeated. And it can cause spiritual defeat, lastly, when you don't realize our future is in his, his hands. You know, um, here today, gone tomorrow. That's what he says in verse, verse 20, therefore, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. In other words, focus on today. Enjoy what God has given you. And, you know, don't worry. Don't be anxious about things. Today is the greatest day to serve Christ. Anything beyond that is in his hands. We may not be here tomorrow. You don't know. No matter how things look in your life, trust me, God is in control. And so the psalmist says in 90, Psalm 90, verse 12, So teach us to number our days that we may gain, acquire a heart of wisdom. Wisdom. 